ahead and find Proverbs chapter 3 with me. Proverbs chapter 3. As you turn there, allow me to welcome you this morning, in particular if you're visiting. We're uh, glad, glad to have you with us. Uh, I want to invite you back this evening at 5. <clears throat> uh, we will do our uh, monthly Q&A night. Uh, last month I was gone on the second Sunday, so we didn't do it, and then I didn't do it the following Sunday because I was thinking about why and I just didn't. So uh, maybe it's only allowed on the second Sunday. That's just the rule. But tonight we'll, uh, we'll continue with Q&A night. Um, always enjoy it um, and uh, getting good feedback from that. So the book of Proverbs has, has the reputation of being a very practical, down-to-earth book. That's a well-earned reputation. But the general assumption is, you know, the Psalms are really the lofty. It's the lofty expression of, uh, of, of our service to God. The Psalms, we think, are full of poetic and heavenly language about the nature of God. And Proverbs is more just kind of down and dirty advice for everyday life. For everyday life. It's not so much concerned with big thoughts of God, but more just regular everyday life. And I think that is a bit of a caricature. And I say that because, for one, Proverbs is just as poetic as the Psalms. In a different way, perhaps, but Proverbs is using poetry and poetic devices every bit as much as the Psalms are. And it's also a bit of a caricature because that down and dirty advice of the Proverbs is always firmly firmly, uh, rooted in our relationship with God. In fact, the beginning of Proverbs says we'll never understand or implement any of the wisdom of the Proverbs until we understand this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which is a profound and deeply theological statement. You will not know anything about the world until you are instilled with a deep fear and reverence and understanding of who God is. And so in the interest of of avoiding the caricatures, what I want to study this morning is what Proverbs has to say about God. What does Proverbs say about God? And how does the character of God influence the way we live, the down and dirty advice of the Proverbs? Because those two things have everything to do with each other, Proverbs says. The character and nature of God and the way we live. The the first is not an esoteric question. Uh, Let's go sit... uh, you know, sit off in a, in a study somewhere and ponder the imponderables about God, and then we'll do everyday life as a separate thing. Proverbs says those are two deeply related things. And in fact, a pretty startling discovery I made as I looked at what Proverbs says about God is that altogether the Proverbs paint a pretty complete picture of God. There are a multitude of statements about God's character, about God's power, about God's relationship with man. And they're not just a list of attributes either. It is also exploring the implications that grow out of those traits of God. I think Proverbs paints about as complete a picture of God as do the much longer Old Testament books of, say, Genesis or the Psalms or Isaiah. Proverbs is right there with them in painting a picture of God. So there is also so much about God in the Psalms. I'm actually going to break this into two. This is going to be two sermons. I'll do the other next week. I'm going to call this sermon Proverbs on God's Power, and the sequel I'm going to call call Proverbs on God's Person. Proverbs on God's Power today, Proverbs on God's Person next week. This sermon is about God's big traits. 
That is God's power to create. God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, God's sovereignty, the big ideas about God. The next one is going to be more about God's relational, personal traits. That is how he relates to us. Not God's big traits, but in some way God's intimate traits. How he relates to us. Proverbs about the love of God. Proverbs about what God does and doesn't like. Proverbs about God and his judgment on mankind. I'll throw this in there. A, a title, titles I was contemplating for these sermons would be this one I would call Proverbs on Elohim and the next one Proverbs on Yahweh. See, Elohim is the generic Hebrew word for deity. If you just want to talk about deity as an idea, it's Elohim. Proverbs on Yahweh, Yahweh is the personal covenant name God has revealed to Israel, so God's more relational traits. But today we think about God as Elohim, God's bigness, God's power. And I want to explore three dimensions of Elohim in the Proverbs. Number one is the God who creates. This is the first picture of the big God in Proverbs, God, the God who creates. This is Proverbs 3 and verse 19. Proverbs 3 and verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. In this section, the, the father in the Proverbs <clears throat> is speaking to his son. And what he is doing is extolling the virtues of wisdom, and he is urging his son to pursue wisdom more than he pursues anything else. And the value of wisdom here is shown by how God used wisdom when he founded the earth. It says God made the world through wisdom. God in his wisdom put everything in the universe in exactly the right place, he fine-tuned the universe to sustain life. And now that creator who had all that wisdom to make our universe, our cosmos, what it is, that same wise God is telling the creatures he made in his image, here's how I want you to maintain the continuity of the universe. Here is how you live in harmony with the rest of creation. I, the wise God, am going to tell you, my creatures, how to live wisely on the earth that I made. Here's how you do what I created you to do. In a sense, this is, what, this is what this proverb is saying. If God's wisdom can tell the planets where to go, why can't he tell you where to go? If he can tell the planets how to behave, why can't he tell you how to behave? That's the question. And by the way, when you think about it, we're probably the worst parts of God's creation. Because you know what the planets do? The planets go exactly where God tells them to go. In perfect orbit, a perfect cosmos God creates. The planets go exactly where they're told. Think of any other part of creation. How about a seagull? You know what a seagull does? Exactly what God created seagulls to do. Seagulls are perfect in their seagullness. But what about us? How well are we being humans? How closely are we conforming to the purpose for which God created us? I can speak for myself, not so hot sometimes, right? The planets are perfect planets and the seagulls are perfect seagulls. And we've got a lot of work to do to learn to be perfect humans. This is Proverbs tw uh, 20, Proverbs 20 and verse 12. <clears throat> Proverbs 20 and verse 12. Sometimes the simplest Proverbs um, contain some of the profoundest insights. This is Proverbs 20 and verse 12. 
the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Very simple statement. God has made the ear and he has made the eye. But it's saying, I think, something significant when you fit it together with the rest of the book. Because what Proverbs is trying to do is to train us and our senses to conform to their God-given purposes. We listen to wisdom with our ears. We get a survey of the lay of the land. We understand the world and make wise decisions through what we see with our eyes. This is not an impossible job to hear wisdom and to discern the lay of the land with our eyes. This is not an impossible job because we were literally made to do those things. God has created those senses, those instruments of hearing and seeing. And if God has made our ears and our eyes, then we should be careful what we do with them. As, as the song goes, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. We understand that God has made these things and we want to use them for the purpose for which he created them. This is Proverbs 22 and verse 2. Proverbs 22 and verse 2. <clears throat> the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So line one of the Proverbs says, the rich and the poor have a common bond. They meet together. They're the same. And our interest is piqued because we think they couldn't have anything, anything in common at all. They're utter opposites. The rich and poor live different lives. They have different things. They pretty much live in different worlds. What in the world could they have in common? What in the world could they, could they be exactly the same in? Line 2 tells us what that common bond is. The Lord is the maker of them all. It's a reminder that gives the rich man a much-needed dose of humility and gives the poor man a much-needed dose of dignity. We are all creatures of God, no matter how much or how little we have. We are all reliant on God for our lives. And we are all answerable to God in judgment. So how does the realization that we have a creator affect our lives? That's the question Proverbs is raising. How does the realization that God is the creator, God is our creator, how does this affect our lives? Well, to me, it raises a multitude of other questions. If we have a creator, we ought to know what he had in mind when he created us. Why did he make us? What did he make us for? What did he make us to do? What did he intend for us to do with the life he has given us? And what did he intend for us not to do with the life he has given us? If God created us for one purpose, and we ignore that purpose and do something else that we invent, that's probably going to lead to some problems. You know, it's a bit like, if, if we just totally go against the purpose for which God made us, it's a bit like trying to use a, a piece of fine china as a hammer. That's not what it was made for. And if we try to use this thing in a way it was not made for, it's going to be disastrous. It's going to be ineffective for that purpose, and it's going to be disastrous to that thing. Proverbs is saying we need to know our Creator. We need to understand what He created us for. We need to understand what He did not create us for. And the problem with sin... The problem with sin is not just that we're breaking God's no-no's. Sometimes this is how we conceive of sin. Well, God made rules, we break the rules, we're a rule breaker if we do sin. We broke God's no-no's, we, we disobeyed the teacher. That's, that's not the picture. The problem with sin is that we're using ourselves, our bodies and our minds, we're using ourselves for something we were simply not created to use them for. The point is, sin is bad for us. 
we're breaking the instruction manual. The way in which we're supposed to use this thing God has given us, we're not using it that way. Sin is bad for us. Sin is bad for relationships. God did not create us to have these relationships and to sin across these relationships all day, every day. It's going to ruin relationships. Sin is bad for the world. It literally ruins the world in Genesis 3, and it keeps doing that today. Sin ultimately makes us unhappy. The morning after the pleasure of sin is always an unhappy realization. Sin is a diminishing of life. Sin is using the fine china as a hammer. And by the same token, what's good about righteousness, Proverbs says? What's good about righteousness is not just that we mind our P's and Q's of the Bible. What's good about righteousness is that we're literally conforming to the purpose God made us for. We are going with the grain of reality when we follow God. When we are righteous, when we're living righteously, what we're doing is living in the objective world where God is God and where I live like he's actually God. It's living in the real world. It's living in reality whenever we obey God. See, Proverbs drives home to us. We have a creator, and if we have a creator, we better start acting like it. We better start listening to him. If he made the world, maybe he can tell us how to get along in the world that he made. He is the God who creates in Proverbs. Number two, he is the God who knows. This is Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. He is the God who knows in Proverbs. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So line one is is a, a plain statement about the omniscience of God, how God knows all. He is all seeing, he is all knowing. Line two of the proverb says, let's make sure we understand just how complete his knowledge and his vision are. God keeps watch over everything. He sees all the evil and he sees all the good. Has any evil, has any cruel, unjust, or corrupt thing ever been done on God's earth? Has any of that ever been done on God's earth without God's knowledge? The answer the proverb gives is no. None of it escaped God's notice. Has any good thing, any kind, loving, selfless deed ever been done on God's earth without God's knowledge? And the answer the proverb gives is no. Nothing has ever happened on God's earth without God's knowledge. When we combine God's knowledge with God's judgment, I think this proverb is intended to be a massive comfort to God's children and a massive warning to God's enemies. God sees and God knows. All wrongs are taken note of. They will be righted. The innocent will all be vindicated. The guilty will all be punished. And part of what that means for us in our world and the way we live in it is we just need to stop wringing our hands over the evil in the world as if everything's off the rails and God's out of control. This proverb says God is more aware than you are about what happens on the earth. He's got a handle on everything that happens on his earth, no matter how good it is and no matter how evil it is. Your good does not go unnoticed. And also your evil does not go unnoticed. This is Proverbs 15 and verse 11. Verse 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. 
This is what I call a how much more proverb. If this is true, then how much more is this true? So in the first line, we've got these two places mentioned. First is Sheol, which is the Hebrew idea of the place of the dead. No no reference to to, um, heaven and hell or anything like that. Simply the the place in which the dead go after they die, the grave. The the next word, Abaddon, is a related word but has more to do with, with punishment and the destruction of the wicked who die. The point, the point is, these two places he mentions are the deepest, darkest, most mysterious realms to us. The state of the dead. What happens to people when they die? This is all veiled in mystery to us. Even when we look at the Bible, what the Bible says, it's still quite mysterious. We can only kind of see, see hints and pointers. In the Hebrew mind, Nothing could be further removed from God than Sheol or especially Abaddon. And yet the first line of the proverb says, these deep, dark places lie as open books before God. The deepest, darkest, most mysterious places you can imagine are open books to God. He knows everything about them. What then is the second line of the proverb saying? If these deep, dark, mysterious places are open books to God, If God knows the deepest mysteries of the dead, how much more does he know about the hearts of the creatures he created in his image? It's an impactful way of describing just how deeply God knows us. He peers directly into our hearts as no one else can. As we are told in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This proverb says you have no idea just how true that is. So, next time we are confronted, next time someone says, there's something in your life I'm concerned about, there's something you're doing, there's something I'm hearing that I'm not concerned about, and we are tempted to respond with a self-justification that goes something like this. Well, God knows my heart. God knows I'm a good person, so all this stuff you're bringing up, forget you. God knows my heart. Next time we're tempted to justify ourselves that way, We do well to remember just how true it is. God knows our heart. God does know your heart. And actually, he knows your heart better than you do. And God may see in your heart some issues that even you are blind to. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Proverbs 16.2 Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Proverbs 21 and verse 2. You better be sure God knows your heart. This is Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 and verse 1. Proverbs 30 and verse 1. The last two chapters of Proverbs are quite interesting. Um, What we have are the words of a couple of kings. uh, A couple of kings and uh, and other prophets or or, uh, oracles. And it seems that Solomon, and we're told this in the king's account, was a compiler of of wisdom from other places, things he deemed worthy of our attention. And it seems this is a part of that. He's collected some wise sayings from other people. And this is from a guy named King Agur, whoever he was. This is Proverbs 30 and verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle, and here are his words. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? 
Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? (coughs) Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So this section of King Agur's Proverbs begins in 1 through 4 with a humble lament of his own shortcomings and of mankind's shortcomings, which then sets the stage in verse 5 for him to invite God's wisdom in to guide his life. Agur says, I am worn out and I'm tired and I'm dumb and I don't know anything. I don't understand the world. I wasn't there when it was created. I am completely ignorant and powerless to know the world as compared to God. It's an illustration of the fact that if we are going to get wisdom, it begins by realizing I don't have it already. Wisdom always begins with this humility. I don't know it all, so I need to go find someone who does. We humble ourselves beneath our omniscient creator because, as he says, who has knowledge of the Holy One? The answer is, well, God does because he is the Holy One. And who has gathered the wind in his fists? He asks. And then he answers, well, I know who does have the wind gathered in his fists. And I know the one who, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment. And I do know the one who established the ends of the earth. I don't know anything. I can't do anything. But I know someone who does know everything. See, this trait of God, God's knowledge, God's omniscience, this must always be in place firmly if we are ever going to fear the Lord. Respect and revere Him in His Word because He knows all and He sees all. We know and we see almost nothing. We, as Agur says, are short-sighted and weak and powerless and ignorant and we tend to make a mess of things when we do it our own way. When we understand that like Agur, and then we see God's omniscience, it is then we are primed to receive his wisdom. I know nothing, and God knows everything. Which brings us to number three. Third and finally, Proverbs tells us of the big God who rules. The God who rules. The word sovereign is is really the word I want to use. Sovereign is a word that means possessing supreme or ultimate power. If you just think about the last five letters of sovereign, you get the word reign, which is what a king does. When a king is sovereign, he answers to no one. He's no vassal for some other uh, king of, of another empire. He answers to no one. The buck stops with him. And Proverbs says there's really only one sovereign king in that way. Any king who claims to be sovereign on God's earth, like, say, Nebuchadnezzar, learns the hard way eventually just how little say he had over the world. The question Proverbs raises, who tells God what to do? Who corrects God? Who who says to God, God, I think you had it wrong on this one? Who has the right to question his authority? The answer is, of course, no one. This is Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16 and verse 1. Proverbs 16 and verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I think that the best way to understand this parallel is this. Men have plans, but what does God have? Answers. 
We have plans and God has answers. We have in our head the way we think things should go or will go. We have our list of what we'd like to accomplish and how we'd like to accomplish it. You know, young professionals have, have uh, plans, forecasts for their lives. Here's my two-year plan, my five-year plan, my ten-year plan. Here's where I want to be. Here's how I'm going to get there. They think they know how they like their lives to unfold. But, you know, all we can ever do is plan and hope. Only God knows. Only God has the answers. This is verse 9 of Proverbs 16. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Reminds me of something James says in James chapter 4. James tells us, Come now, you who say, here's what we tend to say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. And yet James replies, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, instead of saying, we'll go to such and such a place and do this, instead, James says, you should say this, if the Lord wills, we will live, and then we will do this or that. See, both James and Proverbs want us to acknowledge that everything, everything we want to do, even the life that we may or may not have tomorrow, are in God's hands. We have our plans, we have what we think we're going to do, We are always completely dependent on the sovereign God. We have plans. God has answers. This is Proverbs 16 and verse 4. Proverbs 16 and verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So line one makes a statement about how God has created everything. God has a plan for everything in his creation. Line two zooms into a specific group which says, you, you want to know just how true line one is? God even has a plan for this group. The, the point is to drive home to us that our sovereign God has made everything and that it's all under his control. But what like to references is the fact that sometimes it doesn't seem that way because there is evil in God's world, which seems to cut against God and work against God's plans. You know, the classic question is, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? Well, line two of the proverb says, whatever else we have to say about that, know this, the existence of evil is never a threat to God's sovereignty because God has a plan for evil too. His plan here is a day of trouble for it. And there are tons of examples in Scripture of God using evil men, evil intentions, evil actions to further his own will. The crucifixion of Jesus comes to mind. All the evil of Jerusalem conspires against God's Son to thwart his plan, and God uses their conspiracy against them and to redeem the world and to accomplish his purpose. One of my favorite lines of any psalm goes like this. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. That's what this proverb is saying. Go with me to verse 33, Proverbs 16 and verse 33. Proverbs 16 and verse 33. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the lot here refers to the ancient practice of casting lots. It would sort of be the ancient version of flipping a coin. 
to decide between two options, leaving things to chance. Casting lots seems like we're just leaving things to fate, leaving things to chance. But this proverb says, it's not the lot that determines our lives. It's God whose hand is in it all. It's a statement of God's providential sovereign hand in everyday events and decisions of life. This is Proverbs 19 and verse 21. Proverbs 19 and verse 21. 1921. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It contrasts the plans of man with the plans of God. We make plenty of plans which are subject to change, often unfulfilled. But when God makes a plan, when God purposes to do something, what happens? It stands. Which means, by the way, There's exactly one way for our plans to stand. There is exactly one way for us to be absolutely certain about our lives without any worry or uncertainty. How can we make our future plans certain? Only by aligning them with God's certain plans. Which is why it's so important to do things like pray in God's will. We can always be certain God will do what he has said he will do. And so when I pray for God to do what he has said he will do, when we pray for wisdom, which he said he wants to give us, when we pray to be delivered from temptation, which obviously God wants to happen, when we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when we pray that God be glorified, these are all purposes of God which will stand. This is Proverbs 21 and verse 1. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The image of of line 1 is of a stream which is manipulated and used for irrigation. And the stream is turned and and flows wherever wherever we want it to go. There, There are all sorts of techniques where water is diverted to travel to a plot of land and irrigate the crops. And it says that's what the king's heart is like in the hand of God. Here's the most sovereign person apparently on God's earth. Here's the top dog who no one tells what to do. And that top dog does not actually do what he wants to do. He can't accomplish all he wants to accomplish. Line 2 says, He, God, turns the king's heart wherever he will. Now this is really a big uh, sticky theological question. How the free will of man and the sovereignty of God interact with each other. I think perhaps the best commentary on the issue would be the story of the Exodus, where an equal number of times it says, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, which I believe, and also says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which I also believe. There's also a number of times when it simply says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We affirm that man has free will, because the Bible does. And we also affirm that God can use men, even the most hard-hearted king like Pharaoh. God can use men to accomplish his will. That's what this proverb says. One willful man, no matter how powerful he seems, one willful man can never thwart the plans of God. No man is truly sovereign. Only God is. Finally, Proverbs 21 and verse 30. Proverbs 21 and verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail, can avail against the Lord. 
This proverb says, gather up all the wise people in the world, all the smartest people in the world, all the great minds, all the collected knowledge of mankind. Let's all, as, a hum- as humanity, set our minds to accomplish something. But if that wisdom and that planning are against the Lord and against the Lord's will, what will happen to all of mankind's plans, all of mankind's well-laid plans? What will happen? It cannot avail against the Lord. Are you thinking of the same story I am? This is the Tower of Babel right here. What happened at Babel? All mankind decided he'd get to God on his terms and not God's. All the world decided we'll make a great name for ourselves, not ask God to give us a name, but we'll take one for ourselves. All the world gathered together for the Tower Project, and what happened? God thwarts their irreverent attempt to rise into his level by their own efforts. All mankind cannot accomplish something, as united as we may be. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the wisdom of the world is folly to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So as I, was, as I prepared this, I've got to tell you, I was impressed by just what a complete picture of God <clears throat> Proverbs paints. A picture I'm not sure you have quite as complete in any other Old Testament book. And it gets even more complete next week when we study God's relational traits. It's driven home to us that God is the creator of this world and the creator of us. Given that we were created, we need to read the instruction manual of the creator because he has told us how to get along in the world he has made. In Proverbs, we're impressed with God's omniscience. He knows and he sees all. He sees all the good and all the evil. When we realize this about God and we realize our own comparative ignorance, It prepares us to trust and obey the omniscient God. He knows things I don't know. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows the world better than I know the world. And so if he says something, and I don't totally understand why he says it or what his purpose is for saying it, I can trust that he knows better than I do. After all, where was I when God laid the foundations of the earth? And you can't read Proverbs without being impressed by God's sovereignty. We formulate plans. We cross our fingers hoping it will all work out. Because that's basically all we can do with the future. But when God makes plans, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Which causes us to realize the only way we'll ever have any kind of confidence or certainty in this world is to align ourselves with God's unshakable purposes. To fight against God, to resist Him, to go strike out our own way is absolutely futile if God is sovereign. God is creator and we are creatures. God knows all, we know next to nothing. God is sovereign and we are powerless and subjects of him. And so the question I ask this morning is, do you need to come and acknowledge God's power, God's bigness? Do you realize perhaps for the first time that God is God and you are not? Do you realize now, perhaps more than you ever have before, that God knows more about the world than you do? And that his word carries more authority than yours does. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come and could form their lives to the purpose for which they were created. Maybe you need to start going with, not against the grain of reality. If God is God, and if we are not, it's time for us to start listening to him. Come forward now as we stand and sing. Someday you'll stand at the bar on high. Someday you'll record your sing.
Where will you spend your return? 